possible that you don't actually hold any of these false ideas yourself, that you might have a true biblical perspective on these five areas that we are going to talk about. But I can probably guarantee you that someone you know, a friend, a family, a student of yours, someone in your church probably does hold one or more of these false ideas. And so my goal today, hopefully in our conversation, is that we work through this so that you can have a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches in these five areas related to relationships, be able to defend that and faithfully explain that to your loved ones, your family and friends, but then also figure out how to protect those that you love from the destructive nature and the, the things that flow from, I think, these false corrupted views in these five areas that we are going to talk about. So joining me to do that is Dr. Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, one of my professors, a mentor of mine. He is doing a lot of incredible work that we'll talk about here in a second. But Sean, thanks for coming on, joining the show. Ryan, you're doing awesome work, bud. Super proud of you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah, Sean, uh, if you don't know, if you're a podcaster and you listen to podcasts and you're not subscribed to the Think Biblically podcast, it's amazing. Uh, Sean and co-host uh, Scott Ray, a great ethicist, cover a lot of different issues and teach you and go, go through how to think biblically on a wide range of issues. Um, Sean also has his own YouTube channel, which just like an hour ago, finished his own live stream on biblical archaeology. So if that's something uh, I link to his channel in the description below. You can check that out. But our conversation today is going to cover Sean's newest book, one of 20 books. You're not doing enough, Sean. You need to do a little bit more podcast, YouTube channel, high school teacher, college professor, author of 20 books. Do you need, come on, what, what are you doing all your, what are you spending all your time doing? Well, my free time, I'm on a uh, TikTok. My kids <laughs> broke me into that. So seriously, you are that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Dude, you are so busy on there. It's crazy. I can't believe all the stuff that you are putting out. But anyways, his newest book, Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture is going to be the topic of conversation today. Um, and so let me just start off. Uh, there's a lot of issues as an apologist, as a professor, a parent, a teacher that you can be addressing when it comes to truth of Christianity, the resurrection, divinity of Jesus, or other cultural issues. Why sexuality? Why is this a topic that you want to take the time and write this book on? Well, there's certain topics that are timely and certain topics that are timeless. So timeless topics would be those that every generation wrestles with, like the problem of evil. Timely topics would be like, especially right now, like critical race theories, very timely. Well, sexuality is both timeless and it's timely. It's an issue. <laughs> you read the Bible, people wrestled with it, but there's right. certain nuances today. There's a lot of talk about sex abuse. There's the issue of pornography. There's the LGBTQ conversation. So it really is the elephant in the room that we need to talk about because we're human, but it's also very, very timely for a number of different reasons as well. And frankly, one of the reasons I wrote the book is I have three teenagers in my home. Yeah. And this book, in some ways, I'm writing it to the young people I care about and love most to help them think biblically about sexuality. Yeah, that's so good. And, and I'll say that this book is so relevant and useful. Uh, just today and tomorrow, I'm finishing the chapter on sexuality in my senior ethics class. Some of those students might be joining today. And I tell you what, Sean, um, I stole quite a few ideas from here. The, the discussion questions you have, my students would probably say, hey, I heard that. So I'm, I'm stealing good, good stuff out of here for people. Um, but I think we have to kind of take a step back before we get into these five areas that I think that we have confusion about, that our culture has confused us so we don't know what to think. And then seeing how those confused ideas are playing out in certain behaviors and beliefs. I think we have to take a step back and say, why are we confused? And I think it comes down to this idea of trust. Uh, who are we listening to? So when we look at, especially young people today, who are they listening to when it comes to this area of sexuality? Well, I love that you frame it this way, because I think that's the heart of the question that any biblical sexuality has to be rooted in, who are we going to listen to, in a particular, why can we trust God as a source? Now, for this generation, I heard it said jokingly, that young people have more pressures and temptations on the way to the bus stop than their mm. grandpa did Friday night when he was out looking for it. Yeah. Now, why has that changed? And that's because of one obvious thing, which is a smartphone. Right. It has brought, I mean, you think about the number of voices that have access to young people today, nonstop. It's just, it's bewildering. So the question is, are they going to listen to voices on social media? 
Are they going to listen to voices in the educational system? Are they going to listen to voices that's their family, their friends, their neighbors, uh, something they read in a book? There's so many voices weighing into that. The question is, who do they trust? Will they trust the God of the Bible? And will they trust us? So I think the heart of the question is convincing young people that God is worth trusting and listening to, even if they don't understand why God gives certain commands that he gives. So I'll give you an example, Ryan. If I'm skipping ahead to where you're headed, I apologize. But one thing that's always fascinating me is that the first commandment in the Bible is to not eat fruit. Now, why that commandment? I mean, in some ways, why didn't God say, you know, to Adam, don't murder Eve? Like that would have been really easy to follow, right? He probably wanted to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe at certain times. But remember, it's different than Cain and Abel. Right. Because she was a human being. He was pumped to have someone he could just talk to yes. different than the animals. Right. And so God says, don't eat fruit. By the way, fruit is meant to be eaten. If you read Genesis 3, when Eve picks it up, it like appeals to her senses and her taste and her mind. Like, why would God say, here's fruit, which is meant to be eaten, and this one looks really good, but don't eat it? Hmm. Like, in some ways, it's like, is God setting them up for failure? And I think the answer is, when it's all said and done, if a creator is going to be in a relationship with a creature, if a finite being is going to be in a relationship with an infinite being— there's going to be many times where we don't understand and we're going to have to trust God nonetheless. Mm-hmm. That's why I think he gave that commandment. And ironically, it's exactly the same today. The forbidden fruit of so many different relationships. The young people say to me, well, I can't those two people be in love. That looks good. That makes sense. Well, part of the way we analyze that is, okay, who is God? Is he worthy of trust? And what does God say about this? Even if you don't fully understand it. So I love that you started with this question because trust is at the heart of questions of sexual ethics today. Yeah. And and as I was reading through the book, you know, what stood out and you even had of it kind of as a highlighted quote was, are you willing to give up some things the culture says are good in order to do what God says is best? And I think this is huge. I hear students all the time being like, well, I know God says it's bad, but I don't know why it's actually bad. As if like we have to have some other reason besides God or somehow God in his all-knowing, you know, omniscient being this somehow doesn't actually know what's best. And I think it relates a lot to even how we trust our parents. If what your parents say, hey, you need to do this and you trust that what they're saying is good and right, then you do it. It's when we don't trust that their plan is actually best that we sneak off and we do something different. And so I think a lot of it comes down. Same thing as God. I, I think that's right. And that's one of the problems today, even with a lot of Christian kids, is the Bible is antiquated. They think God's commandments are keeping them from all the fun. Right. So, you know, why would I listen to this God? And I, I think it's two things we need to do. Number one is to point to scripture, talk about God's character, and help them see in particular through the person of Jesus, who is God in human flesh, that God really is be good, is good, and can be trusted. Now, I think young people can only really get that when they're in relationships, you can make that connection to a parent. Mm. So sometimes I've said to my son, I'm like, look, I know you don't understand this. Do you know that your mom and I love you? Would you be willing to think that maybe we can see some things that you can't see at this stage of development? If you know we love you and have different perspective, don't make that choice because it's not in your best interest. Now, my son and daughter can still choose to do that or not, but I frame it with trust. I frame it with love, and then that makes more sense to them. The second thing we can do on top of that is to say, okay, actually, we can get through natural law to the goodness of God's design for sexuality without starting with scripture. I think we can make a case for that and then look how it matches up with what scripture teaches. So I think we do both, but it should start with the character of God. Good. I think what what you're saying here brings up a second really important point that must be addressed is before we get to these five, I think, areas of confusion is you keep talking about this, this God's plan is best. And in the book, you talk about kind of kind of a thought experiment of, of what would the world look like if everyone actually followed a biblical sexual ethic? Can you talk about why this is maybe powerful and what would the world look like? 
Yeah, this is a great question. So just probably a couple weeks ago when I was working through this with my students, I went to the board and I said, what would the world be like if the world, if people actually lived the sexual ethic of Jesus? Would it be better or would it be worse? What I'm trying to do is make some connections in their mind from what they know, biblically speaking, to the way the world actually is. Because sometimes we compartmentalize those. And as they started to wrestle and go back and forth, they're like, well, there'd be no sexually transmitted diseases because people wouldn't be having sex outside of a committed marital relationship. There would be no Me Too movement and no need because men would be respecting women. There'd be no controversy of abortion because we'd understand every human being in the womb or out of the womb has value. There'd be no crude sexual humor. There'd be no victims of pornography. There'd be no dads who leave their wives for their younger trophy wife. I mean, the world would objectively be better if people lived the sexual ethic of Jesus. So that's just a practical activity that I'm trying to connect some dots for people to say, look, the teachings of Jesus aren't to ruin your fun. They're not to control you. They're actually to set us free. And for our objective good as a society, if we're willing to trust that God is good and follow them. I mean, the sexual revolution basically was <laughs> the opposite of this. And I heard Lee Strobel interview Hugh Hefner one time, hmm. and he kind of asked him this question. He goes, hey, people said we're going to have free love. But now looking back on the sexual revolution, there's STDs, there's broken marriages, there's sex abuse. Isn't that part of your legacy? And I was like, dude, great question. <laughs> And all Hugh Hefner could say was like, um, so you're saying sex is bad. And of course, Lee's not saying that. He's like, right. you can't live without sex. And I'm like, there is the sex revolution in a nutshell. Right. Contrast with Jesus, who was never married, who was single, lived a fulfilled relational life. So right. we need to make those connections for young people to see that God's teaching actually is for the good of society and the world and families and kids. Absolutely. It is good and it has good effect on the world around us, which is why then when we break away from God's good design, it starts to destroy, right? And these areas that we're going to look at actually have practical consequences that are destroying relationships. And we're going to talk about some of those like divorce and cohabitation and pornography and mm-hmm. and sexual issues, you know, desires like homosexuality and, and, and different things that we're going to get to here as we move along. Now, what I probably could have included as the first confusing point, but I think it's, again, kind of that preface before we get to them, is the topic of, well, isn't it all just relative? Like, we're just talking about our opinions here, Sean. You think that this thing is bad. You think that sex has whatever, but we're simply just talking about opinions here. How could you actually defend and explain to a young person that sexual ethics are objective, is an objective issue, not based on someone's opinion? So I'm going to role play with you, Ryan, okay? Let's do it. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's okay to sexually abuse women? Yes no, or no? Not. Think- no. Okay. What did you just concede? You just conceded that but it's actually like it. <laughs> wrong to treat. Okay, you don't like it. So if somebody likes it, is it okay for them? Or would you still want to stop them even if they like it? In fact, this whole Me Too movement... I'm pretty sure everybody who sexually abused women liked it or they wouldn't do it. Right. So let's be careful not to confuse what we like with what's right and wrong and opinions about things with stuff that we all agree on, which is that you can't just do anything you want to somebody sexually. We know that that robs somebody of something we as human beings have no right to take. So, but Sean, I don't but think Sean, you're, question, but hold on, Sean. I mean, you're, you're talking about this one that we all agree, right? We all understand that this is wrong, sexual abuse, but things like, you know, to, you know, high school or college kids having sex before marriage, you know, that are going to school, they're, they're two consenting adults. What they're doing uh, is, is up to them. And clearly, yes, that's wrong. But when it comes to things like homosexuality, fornication, who are you to say that's wrong? Okay, so let's make a distinction. You just conceded that when we're talking about sexuality, it's not all a matter of opinion, that there are some rights and there are some wrongs. 
So now we can shift, given that we know that sexuality belongs in the category of objective moral truth, now we can shift and start to talk about the other areas of sexuality. So I'll make a case for you. I mean, we can keep role playing or you can come back at me. But notice what, what the person just did is the moment you concede, and you know this, Ryan, the moment you concede one act is wrong, just one, then you're no longer a moral relativist. And that's right. the key point that goes back to your initial question. Right. And I was not planning for you to role play. And I find that this, this is really, <laughs> no, but it's awesome because this is exactly what I did in my show last week. So if you're watching or listening and, and you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back because last week I talked about this idea that no one actually believes, my belief, no one actually believes in complete sexual freedom. Everyone draws a line that would say rape or sexual abuse or sexual harassment is wrong. So then the question becomes, well, who gets to draw the line and why is it drawn there? Do you actually have an objective, good reason to draw the line there rather than someone else's opinion that says we draw it over here? And so um, that's what we talked about last week. And so I think it's good that you kind of went to that place of pointing out, no, we all draw a line somewhere. Good. So, all right, we're jumping into these false ideas. And the first false idea that I think I hear from a lot of Christians, or at least you ask, say, what do you think this is? And they have a hard time explaining it. And that is, we have false views fundamentally on what love is. Um, What is love? So sometimes our culture gets love right. And you know, I'm a superhero fan. You look at the end of Endgame and look, people have had plenty of time to see the movie. So if you haven't seen it yet and you're just holding out, just click off or hit mute and then come back. But I think everybody knows now that Iron Man lays down his life willingly as an act of sacrifice. And there's a universal recognition in the show and people watching it that that's not only heroic, but it's an act of love for his family, ultimately, for the world. Right. Well, that's the that that's a type of what Jesus did. And when he said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. So sometimes our culture gets it right. Sometimes our culture gets it wrong. On the flip side, we also have a culture that says you can believe whatever you want. You can identify however you want. Whatever choices you make, as long as you decide it for yourself, the loving thing for me to do is to affirm those beliefs and behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, to me, as a parent, as a teacher, as a friend, love is not the same as affirmation. Right. Sometimes I affirm behavior. Sometimes if I love you, I will resist and not affirm certain behavior. That's where I think love's, our culture starts to get love wrong. So I would define love, and I think most people when they think about it agree with it, is that when I am focused on the objective best for you, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally, then I love you. When I'm committed to your objective best and do what is in your best interest, then I'm acting in love towards you. Now, what this tells us, though, is people can think they're acting in the best interest, but not be doing so. Even the people who crucified Jesus thought they were doing what was right. But ironically, they were putting to death the only innocent man who's ever lived. Right? The, the prodigal son was clearly enjoying his life of sin for a while until he came to his senses. So, love is not affirmation. Love is being committed to the objective best of another, spiritually, relationally, emotionally, physically, whether the person recognizes it or not. That's real love. Right. Absolutely. That is so good. And we see this throughout scripture. Right. It, you know, it was in Hebrews chapter what 12 or 13 that right, we, God disciplines us because he loves us. Right. And I think about, you know, the same thing you said with your kids as a teacher. Uh, there are certain things I don't let happen in the classroom because I love my students and I want to see them do well. It's not after it's not affirming all things. It's, it's truly caring. And it is interesting. Even just yesterday, uh, teaching my senior at this class, I had I described a situation between a guy and a girl, very normal cultural situation. I say, did you guys think this is okay? And one girl goes, no. And I said, why not? Because that's not true love. And I said, exactly. Wow. Right? That we can see this idea of what true love is, sacrificial, self-giving, you know, you putting other people first. Um, A lot of what I think we see in relationships is not look like that. And so first area is what is love? And, And again, we talked about this last week. Love is love. Well, what does that even mean? 
Let's define love first. Now, our second area I think that we are confused about that leads to this brokenness is the idea of freedom. Um, how would we you help us understand this idea of freedom? Because we say, hey, we, we, we're free, right? And freedom is a good thing. And we're free in Christ and all this kind of stuff. What is freedom? So give me a moment to unpack this because yeah. I went to my uh, students at a Christian school maybe a year, year and a half ago. And uh, this is 12 students about in 11th and 12th grade. They'd been in Christian homes, Christian school, most of them their entire life. I wrote on the board, I said, describe for me who is truly free. I said, not political freedom, someone who lives a life that is free. And the exact definition they gave was, freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint. I said, okay, paint a picture for me of the person who's free. They said, well, someone alone on an island who's not inhibited by anybody, can do anything they want, is free. I said, okay, if we add God to the equation, does this change how we understand freedom at all and they said they talked amongst themselves came back they said if god exists freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint but with god now there's consequences so all god adds to the question of freedom is consequences maybe guilt in this life and judgment in the next i said okay let me explain you the difference between freedom for and freedom from you guys understand freedom from, which is a lack of restraint. If I'm tied down, if I'm in prison and I'm restrained, there's a sense where I'm not free. But that's only half of freedom. The other half is freedom for. What that means is when you understand what something has been designed for and use it accordingly, then it's set free. So my smartphone, when we understand what it has been designed for, it's not a scuba tank. It's not a, a weapon, right? You can't surf on it. It's when you know it's designed and use it accordingly that you're set free. So let's go to scripture and ask, what did God make us for? Greatest commandment, love God in relationship and love other people. To sum it up, we've been made for relationships. So that means we're only free when we're in healthy relationship with God and other people. By the way, a lot of people have suffered during the quarantine because we don't have those relationships right. and it hurts us because we lack that, right? The worst place to be in prison is in solitary confinement because you're alone. Right. Hell is described sometimes as isolation and loneliness. I said to these students, so ironically, if that's right, then a person alone on an island is not most free. They're actually least free. So I try to get these students to realize that they had imbibed without realizing it a much more secular view of freedom than a biblical view of freedom. Now, two points that might help with this as well. Is freedom really doing whatever you want to do? So I asked my, the students, I said, okay, what if somebody says, look, I'm free. I can look at porn if I want to. Is that person free? Well, you might say, well, they're legally free, but are they really free? I said, isn't the freer person who says, I'm going to choose not to look at this so I don't have to look at men and women as objects. I have self-control is more free than the person who can't go without looking at it. An alcoholic can say I'm free to drink. Question is, can you go without drinking or you're right. not free? Right. So freedom's not doing whatever you want. Freedom is cultivating the right wants. Well, the second part they said is freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint. Well, take a piano. If you look at a piano, tell me who's more free. Someone who sits down says, I can bang the keys and do whatever I want with this piano. Or the person who sits down understands the design of the piano, the purpose of the piano, has cultivated disciplines to use it accordingly and make beautiful music. Which one is more free? And the answer is obvious. So I think what's happened is even our best young people in Christian homes, Christian schools, have imbibed a much more secular view of freedom right. and don't understand that there's no freedom without truth. There's no freedom without relationships. And if we want to be free, we got to understand first, who did God make us to be and how do we live out our design? That's real freedom.
Yeah, absolutely. That is so good. Now, Sean, I know you're a big Marvel fan. Um, I don't know how much any TV shows on Netflix you watch. Have you watched the show Alone on Netflix? I've never seen Alone. Okay. So I think there's like seven seasons. Netflix has one. It's only season six that's on Netflix. Recently watched it with my wife. Uh, here's what stood out. And I use this a similar example with my students because they will recognize uh, the activity that you just did of thinking about who's free and whatnot. Uh, my students said the same thing. Freedom is being able to do what you want with no limitations, no restrictions, no judging wow. whatsoever. Wow. And I said, where does the person live? And one girl said, on top of a mountain. Um, <laughs> there you go. And, and so what's go. funny, though, is so in the TV show alone, what happens is they take 10 people, drop them off in northern Canada along the edge of a lake, completely alone, so they don't talk to each other. And whoever survives the longest wins a half a million dollars. Now, what's interesting is the first two episodes covers the first you know week, two, three weeks that they're up there. And these people keep talking over and over how free they are in nature, how wonderful it is. There's no limit. There's no pressures of society, no due dates, no alarm, no nothing. They just do whatever they want, whenever they want to do it in this true freedom in nature. Now, what's interesting is they're not truly free because now nature has given them restrictions. Like if you don't catch food in the next week, you're dead. And if you don't build your shelter, you're <laughs> freeze to death. But it's, well, that's not from society. It's, it's nature that's doing that. However, as you keep watching the people who keep surviving, they start going crazy. One guy goes home. He goes, I don't care. There's a half a million dollars. I'm going home. I miss my kids. I miss my family. One guy just breaks down crying. Do you love me? And he, because they're, they're alone. They're they're They start going crazy. And I couldn't help but see that and go, look at this. They, they think they're so free in nature, doing whatever they want, whenever they want. There's no pressures of society. And after a few weeks, they just start going delusional and they just start missing and craving relationship. It was fascinating to see this shift. And I think that wow. so directly applies to this point. Great show, by mm. the way. I won't give you any more away other than that one. <laughs> <I watched. laughs> All right. So number three, we got to work through these. I think the third thing that we uh, have messed up on is that actually, no way. I want to come back to free freedom for a second. Um, I, I've yep. heard it said that God gave us free will. So if two men want to have sex and get married, go for it. They're free to do it. What would you say to this? Okay. Don't. When you say they're free to do it, we're equivocated on what we mean by free. Right. There's a difference between God saying we have the capacity of choice and saying, therefore, God blesses whatever we do with that capacity of choice. Right. Those are different things. So, yes, God has given us free will. But by the same logic that you just gave me, I know you're playing the skeptic here. You could say, God has given me free will. I can go steal. I can go rob a bank. I can go fill in the blank. And my point is not to compare homosexual behavior with robbing a bank. If anybody hears that, they're not listening to the example. <laughs> right. Okay. The point being, just because we have the capacity of choice doesn't mean God blesses however we use those choices. And that's clear by just looking in the Bible. People do a whole bunch of things that God judges them wrongly for doing. <laughs> lying, killing a, killing, a whole bunch of sexual behavior. Right. So be careful not to equivocate on what's meant by free will. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Now, jumping to where I think is the third false idea that we hold to. And actually, when I, again, talk to students, as you do too, a lot of us, our work is with students. And I say, what is the purpose of sex? I think that we have, uh, that many people, many Christians do not have a biblical view on what the purpose of sex is. In fact, there's one reason that you mentioned in your book I don't think I've ever heard anyone give. And when I read this, I went, wow, that's beautiful. I've never heard that. So what would you say is the, maybe the cultural view that we've been mistaken by? And then what is the biblical view on the purpose of sex? So keep in mind that in light of what we said, freedom is tied to truth, like the truth of a piano. When we're saying what's the purpose of sex, we're asking what's the truth about God's design for it. And then we're only free when we know and embrace that truth. That's why this is so important. Well, I think scripturally we have three reasons for uh, sex. Number one, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God made them male and female and says populate, fill the earth. So right. first purpose is make babies procreation. Hopefully that's obvious to everybody. <laughs> Second purpose is Genesis 2, 24. It says man leaves his father and mother clings or is bound to his wife and they become one flesh 
The second purpose of sex is unity between a man and a woman in the marital bond. And by the way, this one flesh isn't just physical. It's spiritual, it's emotional, it's relational, it's financial. And we even know of certain chemicals in the body today that are like bonding type chemicals like oxytocin. That when people say, I'm just going to have a hookup and have sex outside of marriage, the heart and body want more because God has designed sex to be in a committed relationship where there's unity. So procreation, unity, (coughs) excuse me. The third reason, I think, is a foretaste of heaven. And one of the reasons you probably haven't read this before is because I got this idea from reading a lot of Catholic writers. They are much more in touch with the theology of the body than Protestant writers. Hmm. I think Protestant writers are much more likely to downplay the value of the body, upplay the value of the soul, without realizing that they're ultimately undermining any objections they could have to something like transgenderism without realizing it. Catholics don't fall into that. You're to love God as frequently as they do. There's exceptions like Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body is a wonderful exception to this. Right. So the third one I think is a foretaste of heaven. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean the way Muslims will sometimes view. If you die in a jihad, you get, 70 dark-haired, dark-eyed virgins in heaven. That is a very sexual view of heaven. That is not what I mean. Right. What I mean, there is no marriage and sex in heaven, Jesus right. says. But sex in this life is one way, not the only way, of anticipating something even more beautiful and more good mm-hmm. in heaven. Well, what is that? When you go to the Old Testament, the name Yada, by the way, is when it says, that's the Hebrew term, like, Abraham knew his wife, Sarah, Yada. Adam knew his wife, Eve. Sex is described in relational terms. Hmm. We think of it purely as physical pleasure. Right. But the way God designed it is in sex, there's no shame. You can actually be naked in front of somebody, so to speak. There's not supposed to be any barriers. And you can love and be loved for who you truly are. There's a deep kind of connection and intimacy and relational knowing that is can only be described in relational terms. Yeah. Now, the older I get, the more this makes sense to me because when you're younger, especially because our culture worships the physical body, we think of sex in physical terms. But if you talk to a lot of married couples that have been married for a long time, their body's sagging, they're getting older, and they'll say, <laughs> you know what? Sex is actually more rich and meaningful than it ever was because we know each other Mm -hmm. and we love each other and there's commitment. I think there's something beautiful about that. Yeah. So what sex is doing in this life is it's foretasting when we get to heaven. You no longer have to put a mask on anymore. You can be known for who you are and loved and embraced and accepted in a deeper way than we can imagine now. And frankly, isn't this what we all yearn for? Look on social media. Most of social media posts are people just saying, recognize me, give me a like, pay attention to me, show me that I exist. In heaven, it's like we can know God and know other people in an intimate way with no strings attached. Sex is one way of giving us a foretaste of the way we will yada God and other people in heaven which is ultimately what we're made for. So if Satan can confuse us about sex, he can confuse us about heaven. Right. Oh my goodness. That is so awesome. And so beautiful to think about this, this deep longing and knowing, because that is so true. It's the, it's the longing of a heart. And I asked my students today as again, this is just so relevant. It happened. We didn't, I didn't plan it this way, but it happened is, isn't it true? Like one of the fundamental deep questions is, am I loved? And it is, Mm. am I loved? Am I known? And not falling for this false view of love so that you feel loved. It's not true love, true love that builds trust rather than destroys trust. So what would you say then to someone who comes along and says, but Sean, isn't the purpose of sex to feel good? Is that what you left that off the list? There's four purposes. I don't think pleasure is the purpose of sex. I think pleasure is the motivation for sex. Mm. I think it's a blessing from God I mean, he could have said like a guy and a girl pinky swearing a kid pop out, right? Like he could have made sex. 
a chore that's non-pleasurable. When your book so, you say take out the trash. <laughs> like, there you go. I'm like, glad I didn't it's not like taking out the gonna... trash. <laughs> I, I mean, it could have been a chore to do so. But in a sense, this is where you can compare it to food. The purpose of food is not pleasure. The purpose of food is to nourish our bodies with energy, et cetera. Mm. But God has given us a body and food and the ability to enjoy the process so that we will eat. So I don't think pleasure is the purpose of sex. Like others will say the purpose of sex is to glorify God. I'll say, well, that's the purpose of everything. Everything we're supposed to do is to glorify God. But that's not a unique purpose of sex alone. I think the three unique things are procreation, unity, and a foretaste of heaven. So good. All right, number four. Number four on the list of things I think we're confused about actually, to me, really stood out because uh, I was listening to an interview you did on your book, and you were asked the question, why is sex before marriage wrong? And your Mm -hmm. answer was, because it's wrong to lie to someone. And I went, huh? And you explained it, and I went, Oh my goodness, that is awesome. And so how you relate this and describe it in your book is this idea, and I think what we are confused about is that we have separated or confused how the physical body and the soul are both together in unity. We've tried to separate physical acts from the spiritual Mm. soulish component to it. So what is the confusion here that's happening? I love that you asked this question, and I've never heard somebody make this argument before. Maybe I just haven't read it, and that also makes me nervous. Like, am I saying something? I must be missing something. But I've asked the question. We can make a case for pro-life without the Bible. You can make a case for natural marriage without the Bible. Can you make a case against premarital sex without using the scriptures? And I'm still processing this, but I would say the reason premarital sex is wrong like you said, it's because we shouldn't lie to people. Now, what do you mean? How is premarital sex lying to people? Well, the only way this is going to make sense, if we understand that we communicate with our words through our soul and we communicate with our bodies apart from our words. Mm-hmm. So my high school students recently, I went to the board and I said, hey, give me examples of ways that we actually I phrase that I say, give me an example of bodily actions that carry inherent meaning. And my students gave examples of like a slap on the cheek. That's kind of a cross-cultural insult. One kid's like, what about middle finger? I said, that's probably more cultural, but I bet every culture has some expression of insulting somebody with your hand or something. Right. I said, okay, what about a hug? Like a hug seems to be a cross-culture. And there's different hugs. There's the bro hug. There's the side hug. There's the (laughs) too close, uncomfortable hug. Like they communicate different things. I said to my students, what about a kiss? They said, well, it depends on a kiss. And it dawned on them. I said, doesn't a kiss on a cheek communicate something different than a kiss on the forehead? It does. A forehead is kind of a blessing top down. A cheek is side to side. I said, what does kiss on the lips mean? And even at some point, they're like, well, in some cultures, like in Russia when I was there, men in the church would greet each other with a kiss on the lips. And at first I was like, oh my goodness, I'm uncomfortable. But I realized, okay, that's a cultural way. I'm just not used to that. But that's a holy, heavenly kiss amongst brothers who love each other in the church. Then I stood up and said, what about a French kiss? And at this point, at least all of my students are like, that, that has sexual romantic connotations. You cannot separate it from that. Right. I said, okay, think about it. If a kiss on the forehead, if a French kiss, if a slap, those actions carry inherent meaning. What does sex mean? What does it mean? And we started to come up with a list and they're like, well, it kind of communicates exclusivity. I mean, if you're with one partner and you find out your partner cheated with somebody else, you across culture unanimously feel that they violated that relationship. Right. Second, it communicates trust. Right. I mean, that, there's reasons why people take off their clothes in front of some people and not others. <laughs> there's a trust with somebody, whatever that may be, at the basis of sexuality. I said, what about permanence? I mean, after all, it's sex that produces another human being that is 50 percent mom and dad that needs its mom and dad and arguably grandparents 
throughout life. It's like, what about love? Don't we all kind of know that sex at least is meant to communicate love? So we talked about this. I said, okay, if sex means trust, exclusivity, love, and permanence, where are those things naturally expressed or meant to be expressed? And they agreed. They're like, well, that's marriage. That's what marriage means. So if you have sex with somebody and you haven't made all those commitments, then aren't you lying with your body saying something that you're not backing up with your life? Hmm. I think premarital sex is lying. Now, the one way around this I've thought, someone could say, well, you could communicate all those things without officially having a ring and getting married. And I say, okay, I think theoretically that's possible. But we have to ask, where is that best and naturally expressed? And marriage is cross-cultural and also communicates that to other people. Yeah. So I think I'm on to something. And by the way, somebody yeah. else pushed back. I, I put this in a Facebook chat and I asked a bunch of youth pastors for their feedback. And somebody said, well, what if a couple gets together and decide it's just a hookup? And I said, okay, they can agree to that. But why do they have to agree it's just a hookup? Because they know that their body is telling them something different. <laughs> right. So it's actually making my point that they have to agree to this. So that's yeah. my best case. And yeah. That's so good. No, I appreciate it. And it's a very, it was so thoughtful as I read through that and processed through it. And even kind of, again, I, I was kind of ex working through it with my students as well, thinking about how these different actions mean something. It's not a meaningless thing. We can't separate the meaning uh, from the physical action. So our last and fifth false idea that has to be cleared up, and a lot of great questions are coming in. A lot of my students are here because we just finished a chapter and I want to address these. Yeah. Uh, but the last fifth, fifth and last false idea is that I think that we have a false idea on what Jesus taught. And I have a few objections that I actually mm. want to go through, but could you quick, maybe quickly summarize what is the teaching of Jesus in the area of sex and relationships? So recently I decided to go back through the New Testament and just pay close attention to what is everything taught about sexuality in a particular Jesus to see if maybe I had come with a different perspective and shaded my view of what he taught. Because there tends to be a view in culture that says Jesus was accepting, he was loving. I've had people say to me, Jesus would be in favor of LGBTQ conversations because uh, uh LGBTQ relationships because Jesus just said, love your neighbor, and this is a loving thing to do. Well, what's interesting is if you go back and read Jesus, he doesn't move in a more liberal, progressive direction on sexuality. Mm -hmm. If anything, he moves more conservative. Two examples. One would be on lust. Now adultery is no longer a physical act. Now it's an act of the heart in the Sermon right. on the Mount. That's a more conservative direction. Second, and when you come to the issue of marriage in Matthew 19, Jesus, are you in favor of uh, any cause for divorce? You support the Hillel liberal school or Shammai the conservative school? And Jesus says, basically, go back to creation any divorce except for sexual immorality is unjust. Jesus doesn't move a liberal direction on divorce. He moves a conservative direction. Right. That's one thing that Jesus taught. There's other things he taught. Another thing I probably should start with this is Jesus shows tremendous grace and kindness to those caught in sexual sin. Right. Think about John 4, the woman at the well. I mean, he speaks truth to her, but he is loving he is kind in a culture that especially would not accept, expect a man to be talking to a woman at all. He shows kindness to her. Um, I'd also say Jesus is in favor of natural marriage. He believed marriage was a sexed institution of one man and one woman meant to be permanent for life. So I, I have a list in the book. I forget off the top of my head. There yeah. were maybe two or three other things that he taught. But yeah. essentially, he moved in a conservative direction. He showed grace, and he embraced God's original design as the pattern for how we should live. 
Yeah. Well, it's almost like you're looking at my notes because yeah, I think you addressed all three comments already or objections that I've oh. heard from <laughs> that I've heard from Christians. So one Christian okay. recently I heard say Jesus changed everything in the New Testament, so we no longer have to follow the commands against sexuality in the, Levit- in the Levitical law. And you're saying, yeah, it's changed more strict not releasing us from the Levitical law. Any other comments you would make on that comparison of Jesus releasing us from Leviticus? Yes, I would. First off, I think the Levitical law in 18 still applies today, independent of what Jesus said. Why? Much One of the questions as we look in the Levitical law is what was transcultural? What was just for the nation of Israel under that covenant in that time? If you read Leviticus 18, where it mentions incest, It mentions child sacrifice. It mentions homosexual behavior. Do you know how that chapter starts and how it ends? It says the beginning, it says, be holy because God is holy. Don't do the sins that are committed. I think it mentions Canaan and Egypt and all these different nations. And then the end of that chapter says, don't follow the sins of Canaan and Egypt, etc. That chapter, you never see Canaan and Egypt judged for not keeping the Passover. Or you never see them judged for in their fields using two different kinds of seed. Those laws were unique for for Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. But it's like this chapter is set apart saying, wait a minute, don't do the kind of evil deeds we see in these other nations, and those deeds are evil even apart from our covenant. So I'm not quite willing to dismiss and say that, well, it's just part of the Levitical code, so it doesn't apply. But we also see that repeated in the New Testament, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and in Jesus's teachings. So I don't go to Leviticus because it raises so many questions and it's complex and it just, that's not my go-to passage. But um, if anyone is interested, just search the Levitical code still apply I wrote an article on this for the Christian Research Journal and unpack it in some depth if that's helpful. Perfect. Wonderful. Now, we discussed, I think, the first objection earlier in the interview, uh, but this is also a comment I've heard from a Christian. It said, I affirm them being the LGBTQ community because Christ first loved us. And it's exactly what we talked about in that confusion of love that we are confusing and equating love with affirmation. Anything else that you'd like to say in response to that? So... Yes, this person is confusing love and affirmation. When it says Christ first loved us, it doesn't mean Christ shows up and say, hey, I affirm however you live, whatever choices you make. Because he loves us, he dies for us self-sacrificially and says, turn from sin, deny yourself, follow after me. So Jesus's love for us comes with what he said in John. He said, if you love me, You'll obey my commands. Right. So Jesus does not affirm however we want to live. He didn't show up with a woman at the well and be like, I affirm you have multiple husbands. That's right. great. No, he calls, and, and I'm not just picking on a certain community. Jesus calls all of us, myself right. included, not to affirm a lot of things in my life. My wife and I last night were talking about how both of us are like, guy, we just see pride coming up in our lives and we wish we could get rid of it like mourning together interestingly enough right so because jesus loves us he doesn't affirm all of our beliefs he doesn't affirm all of our behavior and that's how we're called to love other people now it doesn't mean i go around telling everybody hey you're wrong don't live this way (laughs) that's a separate thing right how we communicate these things there's wisdom and there's grace and there's kindness but God does not affirm our behavior. And if we're supposed to love other people, like it says in Ephesians 5, the way Christ loves us, then we can't either. Right. So another comment I've heard from Christians uh, says, you know, they, they were talking about how uh, if if you start with, well, here's what's wrong. Here's, here's sin. Here's brokenness. Then the people will run away from Christ. And they said, I want their first exposure to be, I want their first exposure to God to be something telling them you are good as you are. Um, okay. So I, I understand the intuition to speak positively into people's lives. I get that. We live in a broken culture, an angry culture, get on Twitter, get on anywhere. And people are insulting, people are attacking. 
We also live in a super sensitive culture where we are overly sensitive to attacks and need to develop a thicker skin. That's a separate topic. But uh, there is a biblical truth that says people, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of your race, you have infinite dignity and value and worth just because you're human. That is a Christian idea, a Judeo-Christian idea. Right. So if somebody wants to start with that, I get that. That makes sense. Great. Our world talks about human value and dignity, but I don't even know how people ground it without God. So I want to affirm that idea. This was 25 years ago. I was working at the Olympics in Atlanta selling T-shirts. And this man came up to me with a huge rainbow flag blazing across. I can't remember if it was a hat or a sweatshirt. And I was like 20 or 21. I couldn't think of a better way to get in conversation. And I was like, hey, that's an interesting flag. What country are you from? I just played dumb. <laughs> I know, like kind of embarrassing looking back. But he goes, oh, it's a queer thing. I said, so you wear that because you want people to know that you're gay? He said, yes. I said, okay, can I ask you a question? Because you wear that so boldly, do sometimes people give snide comments or mock you because of that? And he goes, yeah, it happens all the time. He didn't know who I was. I leaned in. I said, sir, I am so sorry that people treat you that way. That's not right. Like, I wish people wouldn't treat you like that. And, and I, it's like you ever looked in somebody's eyes, you feel like you can see their soul. And he paused and he just says, can I take your picture? I was like, sure. He goes, you're the nicest person I met at the Olympics. Wow. I didn't have a chance to talk to him about Jesus. It was like come and go. And I just saw, I was like, I wonder if I can have a conversation with this guy. What did I? What I was trying to say is what this question is about is that you are made in God's image. We don't pe treat people like dirt regardless of their choices or their identity or what community they come from. You are made in the image of God. I would love it if Christians began with that common ground with the world and rooted it in scripture. Yeah. Wow. So as we kind of finish up this um the last very common thing i hear from christians and and then we'll have to move on because man we are almost out of time but it is uh that jesus would affirm the lgbtq community because he showed us time and time again that those on the margins and fringes were those he chose and beloved so there's a couple things going on here number one would jesus love the lgbtq community there is zero questions about that. Right. There's no question about that. First off, because Jesus loved everybody. <laughs> and he did love people who were hurting. And I've met a lot of people in the LGBT community, as in other communities, that are hurting and broken. Jesus would love them. No question about it. I can't think of anybody in world history who is known more for or who has encouraged more people to love the marginalized than Jesus. Hands down, Jesus has the corner on loving people. Right. But we have to ask the question, what does that mean that Jesus would love them? And I think he would love that community the way he would love any community. What is the way he loved them? Well, Jesus goes in Mark 2 and he dines with sinners. And people criticized him for hanging out with people that the culture at that time, at least the religious culture, thought were sinners and he shouldn't dine and consider them equals. What was Jesus doing? He knew he wasn't the morality police telling people you got to live this way and live that way. He knew that this group of sinners, number one, because they were considered outcasts, were much more aware of their need for his message mm -hmm. than others who thought they were self-righteous. That was a piece of it. But I also knew they could only live differently when they had his medicine, which is his grace. So Jesus would love the LGBTQ community the way he would any community. He would build relationships with them. He would listen to them. He would speak truth to them, knowing that they can only live transformed lives when they understand his grace deep within and his authority in their life then we're motivated to live differently. Yeah, so good. Well, I'm going to have to change directions because part three of your book, 
uh, lists quite a few different things, as I talked about at the beginning, of pornography and cohabitation and, and uh, divorce and homosexuality and transgender, sexual abuse, all these sort of things. But we got five minutes, and I promised my students we'd answer some of their questions. But maybe if you could just take the, kind of 30 seconds of why include that last part. How is what you kind of have framed at the beginning of your book on the, the true biblical perspective of, of, of sex and relationship and love, and how are these corrupted or sometimes damaging aspects to it? If you could give a quick summary. A ton of thought was put into the structure of this book. The first third, like we've done, is stripping away faulty views of freedom, faulty views of love, trying to replace them with a biblical view. The middle third is, okay, what does God's design for sex, singleness, and marriage look like? The last third are cultural hot topics, pornography, sex abuse, cohabitation, divorce, LGBTQ conversation. And how does a biblical view weigh into those issues? Right. So I think we can only talk about cohabitation when we first understand God's design for marriage. We can only really talk about sex abuse when we understand what it means to be made in God's image and God's design for sex. So each one of those you could say in somehow represents a hot cultural topic in which people have missed God's original design so I'm pointing people back to God's original design and helping them think through the issue of our day. Wonderful. So you want to know what those are? You got to get the book. So Sean, we got four minutes left. So I'm putting you on the hot seat to go as fast as you can through as many questions as got we it. can get through in four minutes. So here we go. Starting off, can people have sex if the two people are not married yet will marry for sure? So can they? Sure. Of course, they're physically able to. But morally, should they? If they're Christians, I would strongly encourage them not to. If they're not Christians, I would encourage them not to, but for a different reason. So when I got engaged to my wife, I saw a lot of my friends get engaged and justify sexual behavior because they're going to get married anyways. What they don't realize is now two decades into my marriage, I travel a decent amount. And because I didn't have sex with my wife when we were engaged, and we could have justified it. There's a voice in the back of her mind that says, you know what? I can trust Sean. Now that he's traveling, I know he's not out doing whatever he can do on the road because when he had the opportunity earlier, he didn't. It built trust in our relationship, ways that I never thought when I was engaged. Right. Decades later, I'm seeing it. Right. So if a couple's sexually active and they want to get married, I've married couples who've done this only when they understand that what they did was not right They've repented of it and then committed to do the right thing moving forward. And that is one thing I stress with my students and I want them to see is how pressuring a girlfriend or boyfriend to have sex before marriage and showing you don't have that self-control can lead to future doubts and issues of, is he waiting now when he goes on that trip? And I want them to see that as you cover here. Uh, so now coming along with what you just talked about, do you think someone who has premarital sex and has genuinely repented is looked down upon in Christianity? You know what? Sometimes, sadly, the answer is yes. I think sometimes what's been called purity culture is that we make like sexual activity the one sin that you commit. Well, you're no longer a virgin, and that's with you for a long period of your life. So sadly, yes, we always haven't done a good job of this. Now, I think things are changing within the church, but Emily, sadly, I think you're right um, that we do sometimes look down on people for this sin that maybe we don't for gossiping right. or we don't like, we are inconsistent. Sadly, I think you're probably right. Yeah, wonderful. Next question. Um, if people know that they're going to be happy and free when they do the things that they're designed to do, why do many people pursue things that they are not designed to do as freedom? Because we are profoundly broken and original sin is real. I am convinced, and this is a whole nother talk, that our nature, like it says in Romans 3 and Mark 7, it's out of the heart that comes lust and idolatry and wickedness and pride. The reason people do things they're not designed to do is because we are deeply broken for one, and second, because we believe lies. Satan is the father of lies and has convinced a lot of people to believe things that are not true. So good. If cohabitation is not accepted by God, is there any way for the couple to know each other more in their daily life before getting married? 
So I just had this conversation with my students, and let me say this as frankly as I can. There is nothing you can learn about your partner cohabiting that you couldn't learn in another way that has any relevance to having a successful marriage. Nothing relevant is learned during cohabitation. Wow. You couldn't learn another way. Nothing. Now, how do you get to know someone? You spend time with them. You spend time with their family. You listen to them. You don't just go on dates where you get all dressed up and nice. You try to see person in the range of experiences of life. And if you give it time, now some people can hide sins even when they're cohabiting. Some people do it when they're married. But I'm telling you, if you want to put yourself at a disadvantage for a successful marriage, go ahead and cohabit because the studies show you have a less likely chance of a successful marriage. By the way, I just read yesterday, Ryan, and let's do two more. We'll push it a little bit. We'll do two more if you want to. Okay. That there is twice as much physical abuse in a cohabiting relationship as there is in a married relationship. And that's just one example of how wow. it puts you to disadvantage. Wow, absolutely. Um, all right, uh, second to last one then. If cohabitation is a sin, would having sleepovers with your significant other still be considered sin if the no sex was involved? And actually, a different student asked it differently is, is cohabitating wrong if there's no sex? What if your roommate uh, happens to be your boyfriend or girlfriend, but there's no sleeping together? What about okay, sleepovers? I love this question. It's in. exactly what my students would ask me, by the way. <laughs> so sometimes we want a specific line. Here's what I would say. Is it possible that somebody stays in somebody else's house in a sleepover, maybe in a different room or maybe on the floor in that room, and they're not sexually active and they don't sin? I'd say that's possible because I don't want to be legalistic. The question is, is that wise? Right. And I think the answer is obviously no. Why? It's, it's almost like God has said, don't have sex until you're married. And this question says, I'm going to get as close as possible without breaking that law. And I'm looking at that going, that is not smart. The question should be, how far can I get away without being insane to respect those boundaries and not make decisions you later regret? Right. But there's another piece to this too. Two other things. You want to say to your kids someday when you want your kids to make wise decisions. Yeah, we had sleepovers, but we weren't sexually active. I slept on the floor in her bedroom. I'm thinking, yeah, mom and dad, really? Like that's, you got to think <laughs> about the message you want to give your kids someday if you right. want them to embrace a higher sexual standard. Another point, when my wife and I are engaged for six months, we got separate rooms in the same apartment complex. And if I remember correctly, it cost me about five grand when I was like 24, which is a lot of money now, but a, even a <laughs> lot more then. And I'll never forget when we were moving out, a man came up to me and goes, hey, I'd be happy to help you guys pack up your stuff and leave. He said, I've noticed you'll come over and like have dinner and hang out, but you always go home at night. And he goes, you don't see that today. He was a non-Christian and it opened up spiritual conversations for him and he never even knew. I never even knew that he was observing this. Yeah. So we have responsibilities to a lot more than just ourselves. Yeah. And you know what's funny, Sean, is I was telling my students as I, they asked that similar question. I said, you know, I remember hearing a story of someone who got engaged and lived in separate apartments in the same complex, but didn't want to live together before they're married. I remember hearing that from somewhere. And then I was reading your book and I went, oh, it was Sean. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> no wonder I took your classes. Of course, I heard that story. All right. Last question. I think this is a, actually a fantastic way to end. And it was, I think, the last one of the last questions for my students. Um, it says, what about love? I think sex could make uh, or could affect them in a marriage. But in a marriage, sex is not the only element. How to keep a long-time relationship? Let me tell you something. If you work on your relationship together, you spend time together, you care for each other, you work through conflict, in 99 plus percent of circumstances, the sex will take care of itself. Sex is not the root of the issue. It's the fruit of the issue. If my, if my wife knows that I'm helping around the house, I'm caring for her, I'm present and I'm loving her, it's, uh, sex is not going to be a problem. When our relationship is broken for some other reason, it manifests itself 
sexually. So don't worry about sex working in a marriage. Worry about becoming the kind of person that loves somebody else and has the character and sacrifice and ability to make a marriage work. Wow, that is so good. Well, Sean, thank you for spending a little bit of extra time with us answering those questions and really diving deep and trying to help us gain a biblical view on love, sex, and relationships and what really is a confused culture. Happy to do it, buddy. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. You're doing a great job. Thank you. I appreciate it. And guys, if you enjoyed this, please enjoy. If you're watching after the fact, other interviews will be up here on cultural relevant issues like with Christopher Yuan and homosexuality or even maybe the interview last week on that boundary approach. You can always subscribe and connect for future interviews coming up. I just confirmed William Lane Craig again in February to talk about the doctrine of the atonement. That should be a great fun conversation and other fun things coming up as well. So don't miss out. I hope this has been a blessing to you. And if it has been a blessing and encouragement, please share it with others so that the body of Christ, the church, can be more solid on its biblical view of sex and sexuality and present the positive view to our culture that it desperately needs. It is very good for our culture. Thank you for joining us today and have a blessed rest of your day. Bye, everybody.